a reading from John 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the feast, hearing that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, he took the branches of the palm trees. They went out to meet him and were shouting, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is the one coming in the name of the Lord and the King of Israel. And Jesus, having found a young donkey, mounted it. He sat upon it just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. See, your king comes seated on the foal of a donkey. His disciples at first did not understand these things. But when Jesus was glorified, they then remembered that these things had been written concerning him and also that they did these things to him. So the crowd that had been with him when he had called Lazarus forth from the tomb and raised him out of the dead, they bore witness. So hence the crowd also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to themselves, you see that this gains us nothing. Look, the world is now gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. But welcome and good morning. Uh, this season of Lent is, uh, is, is coming behind us, right? We finished a whole series on Jesus in the wilderness, Lament, and finished up last week with a beautiful practice of Lament. And so today, as Lent transitions into Easter, there's this week that starts today on Palm Sunday, which we refer to, at least I know Pastor Steve has referred to this in the past, as the gateway, the gateway, like the entrance into Holy Week. Uh, a number of years ago, I was reading Pastor Brian Zahn's beautiful Lenten devotion. If you're looking for a Lent devotion for next year, I didn't tell you it to you early enough for this year, but for the next year, uh, there's, a, there's a Lenten devotion that he has called The Unvarnished Jesus. And this part really stuck with me when I, was, uh, when I was listening, or when I was reading a couple years ago. He writes, how Jesus became king on Good Friday is how his kingdom still comes today. It comes by co-suffering love expressed in forgiveness. It doesn't come from the Machiavellian machinations of politics. You try to say that three times fast. It doesn't come from the Machiavellian machinations of politics or the bloodletting of a battlefield. So he says, let us no longer let our ways be enamored by the ways of Caesar, both ancient and modern, for they have nothing to do with how the kingdom of God comes. You see, and I've been contemplating that quote over the last number of years, and the question that's been haunting me each and every year when we get to this Holy Week is, how can we move through this most sacred of weeks? That's what holy means. Holy means sacred or, or set apart. How can we move through this set apart week? We don't do this every year. I mean, every, every week, but rather this is once a year. This is what makes this so sacred, so holy. How do we move through this most holy of weeks each and every year towards the climax on Good Friday? That's the pinnacle. Not in the power-hungry ways of the Caesars, but rather in the ways of the co-suffering love of Christ. Basically, how can we celebrate this week in the ethos of Christ as king in his kingdom? Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, Christ Jesus, or King Jesus, and Holy, Holy, Holy Spirit, as we walk through into this gateway, into the city of Jerusalem, into the holy city, 
where we'll see Christ on the back of a donkey, then in an upper room, then nailed to a cross, laid in a tomb, and we all know what happens next Sunday. God, would you give us new eyes with which to see, new ears with which to hear, new hands and feet with which to engage the world, and new hearts with which to engage with your more sacred heart and the ways of your kingdom. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, so if you've ever read through the four Gospels, um, the four books written about Jesus' life, you'll notice that, and I think I can say this without exaggeration, everything that Jesus said, literally everything, everything that he did, every single thing that Jesus leaned into was a proclamation of what he called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the heavens, depending on the translation that you're reading or the different book. The problem is, and we've talked about this many times here at Regen, we hear words like kings and kingdoms through the lens of the last 2,000 years, and, 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 and kings and kingdoms to us are, are normally relegated to fairy tales, castles, and knights, yeah? It's hard for us to kind of get into this kingdom mindset, and so perhaps it's best that we look at what Jesus means by speaking of the kingdom of God as the government of God or the politics of God. Now, before you get all squirmishy when, when you hear that word, just, just hear me out. Because Jesus' ministry is basically saying, you better rethink everything because I'm announcing the arrival of my new government, my new politic, my new, my new kingdom. If you were here back in the fall, you'd remember we did a series in Philippians where, where when we got to chapter 3, we read this. We read uh, chapter 3, verse 20 into 4, 1. For the essence, the very being of our, and Paul uses this word polytuma, okay? Often translated in English Bibles as your citizenship. Yet polytuma is the root word for the word politics. Politics just simply means things concerning the city. So things concerning people. He says your polytuma, your politics exists and has always existed in the Oranois, the, the heavens, i.e., Paul's talking here about our citizenship is in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the heavens. And so over his ministry, Jesus has been announcing over and over again the arrival of this new kingdom, right? This new way of engaging in the things concerning the people, the things about the people around us. And throughout, people start to ask and they start to notice Jesus and they're like, so then you're a king, Right? And they start calling him Christ Jesus. You'll see him call him Christ Jesus. Jesus is not Jesus. Christ is not Jesus' last name. <laughs> it's rather it's a title. Um, it, it actually comes from the old Hebrew um, for meaning anointed, the anointed one, because it was physically anointed with an oil, and only the king would be anointed. So basically, saying Christ Jesus is like saying King Jesus. But if you notice, every single time someone tries to call him King or call him Christ or talk about the miracles he's performing, etc. He's always like, no, 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 no. Don't tell anything to anyone. I don't want this to get out. And there's many reasons for that, but not least which is he doesn't want to die yet. <laughs> His ministry's not fulfilled yet, and he knows that the game he's playing, he knows if people call him Lord and King and Christ, it's a dangerous game. He knows it'll end, ultimately end up at his death. And so most of his ministry is spent in, in, in the Galilean region. And, and, and it's one thing to be king in Galilee. You know, to have your followers and all these people in the small region of Judea following you and calling you king. But at some point, at some point, a true king has to finally take over 
the metropolis, right? So the word polis at the end, Latin, politics, right? The metropolis. So eventually Jesus has to come in and quote-unquote conquer the main city of, of Jerusalem. Because this is what conquering kings do, right? They, main, they aim to overtake the central areas of a region in order to make headway in their war. We are currently seeing this in a very, very, very visceral way over in Europe right now where we're watching one nation try to take the main capital cities of another one. And so when the time came for Jesus to officially announce his candidacy, if you will, um, he and his followers begin to go up to Jerusalem uh, towards the metropolis, the center of politics. And, and so they're going to celebrate the Passover. Yes, that is the main reason why they are pilgriming there each and every year. But certainly it's not the only thing on their mind. Because we get the sense, as if you, when you read from the Mount Transfiguration all the way until uh, Palm Sunday, you get the sense that they really are going to Jerusalem with Jesus thinking, this is it. This is now time for him to become our king. He's going to, uh, he's going to free us from our oppressors and be our king. And we really get this sense because think about it, even on the way, on the way to Jerusalem, James and John, it, the two people that are in his inner circle besides Peter, they ask him, they say, Jesus, can we be on your left and your right when you go into glory? They're, they're basically asking, asking him, like, can, I have, can we have two prominent positions in your cabinet when you're finally elected president? That's, that's really what the two disciples are asking. And Jesus is like, I don't think you guys get what you're asking here. You know, you think you're asking about a position of power, like we're going to take over the city and now we're going to oppress the Romans, but you've seen that in all the ways of the other kings and the kingdoms, but what you're basically asking here is to be crucified in me. Be careful what you ask for. Basically, you're asking that you want to offer yourself up like I am in this co-suffering love? Because fast forward, who is on the left and the right of Jesus when he's brought into glory on his throne? Two criminals being executed along with him. And so Jesus arrives on this day that we call Palm Sunday, the reading that we just did previously to this, to this message. He comes from the east. He's coming from Bethany where he stayed the night. But let's pause here for just one second in our Palm Sunday story. Pontius Pilate was also in town this week. Now, contrary to what many people might think, Pontius Pilate didn't live in the city of Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate would have probably hated the city of Jerusalem. It was full of those disgusting Hebrews, according to what he probably would have believed. But yet he was told to by Caesar, you've got to be there because it's, this is the liberation week for the Jews. This is their celebration of the Passover, and things got very unruly during Passover. A lot of resistance movements came during Passover because there was strength in numbers and resolve. And so Pilate then has to make a very big entrance into the city to kind of grab the attention of the people. So Pilate was actually from the king's city of Caesarea Philippi, right? King Caesar, Caesarea Philippi. He would have been coming from the west. So Pilate would have came in in the west gate, mounted on his mighty white horse with chariots and a massive army with him. Basically making a point, guys, don't get out of control here. We'll just crucify anyone that, you know, is going to go against what we as Rome say. And so Pilate would have came through that west gate, purposely putting on an intimidating military parade. So then what does Jesus do? He comes in from the east gate. <laughs> the lowly gate. Not the big entrance, but the smaller gate. Comes from Bethany and sits on the back of a donkey. Not even a full-grown donkey, but the colt of a donkey as a sign of loneliness and, and humbleness. He, it's echoing 
a lot of the prophet Zechariah's book. We read this a little bit earlier too, but part of it. Rejoice, right, in Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. And here's what we like, righteous and victorious. That's the part that we want to get into. Jesus is coming righteous and victorious. But Zechariah continues, lowly and riding on a donkey, on the colt and the foal of a donkey. And this doesn't seem to make it into our Palm Sunday celebrations very often, but verse 10, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, I'll take away the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken, because he, this king, will proclaim peace to the nations. Zechariah seems to be suggesting that someday a good king will come but not as how most kings or how Pilate came into the city, right? Because when King Jesus comes, chariots will be taken away. War horses will be taken away. Battle bows will be broken. And he'll look really silly riding on a donkey, proclaiming peace. Just try and imagine this scene for a moment. Because I'm really starting to get the sense that this was a prophetic drama of sorts. Jesus really seems to be mocking the posturing of the empires that be, mocking the posturing of Pilate's big, you know, entrance into the city. Think about this grown man sitting on top of this tiny little baby donkey. It would be so much like a U.S. president riding into Washington or going into, you know, a U.N. meeting, just riding in a normal old, like, 98 beige Ford Taurus instead of the mighty on, the, like, the black cars and the big, you know, we got the big processions too. It was a splendid display, a brilliant display of political theater. All in the midst of hosannas, save us now, blessed be the name of the Lord, the King, which was a title only reserved for Caesar. Because now notice the people are publicly calling Jesus a king. And at the end of our reading, the Jewish leaders don't like it. Why? Because they've made deals with the powers that be. And those deals had them a very comfy life. And so they tell Jesus, it's time to be quiet. You've got to silence these people. You're not a king. But finally, after all these years, Jesus says, not anymore. This is the first time, if you notice, he's allowing himself to be publicly acclaimed as king publicly allowing himself to know that this is going to lead to his execution. Because this results, his public kingship on this Palm Sunday is the reason, the main reason why his coronation upon his throne on the cross comes on the Friday that we call good. You see, on this day we call good, we see the coronation of the cosmos' true king. But yet again, it's all upside down. He's got a crown but it's a crown made out of thorns. He's got a scepter, but it's made out of a reed. Right? He's acclaimed by the crowds, but it's by mockery and insult. He has a procession, but he's got to carry the cross on his back. He's put on a throne, but he's nailed to it. And remember what Jesus said in front of Pilate, right? So we got these two guys coming into the city in different directions, you know, the week before the Passover, and then all of a sudden, now they got this final stare down after Jesus is brought before Pilate in his house. And notice Pilate doesn't care in the least about theological discussions, you know, debates on doctrine. He doesn't, he doesn't care in the least about any of that stuff. But he's concerned with one question. Are you 
the king of the Jews. Because if you are, he says, we've got a problem. We've already got one named Herod because he's king in this region because Caesar already said that he was. And so Jesus answers, and we find this in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. For if it is, in the, it is for this world, but not from this world. He's saying it doesn't come the same way that Caesar and Pharaoh and all the rest became kings. And he goes on, because if my kingdom were from this world, my servants would be fighting. Because they're not fighting. As a matter of fact, when one of them tried to fight, Jesus said, put that thing away. And healed the man's ear. You see, the kingdom of God always looks like Christ crucified. Or we could say it this way, Christ as king is always reigning from the cross. Throughout history, kings always sit upon thrones. They've sat upon thrones, and that is where the official judgment of what was going to happen to their subjects who were placed before them. And so Jesus' reign is always upon that cross, proclaiming his kingly judgment to those who were nailing him, Father, forgive them. Because how Jesus became king on Good Friday is how his kingdom still comes today. Right? We just read that a few minutes earlier. But here's how the author finishes these, 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 these sentiments. Okay? So the author talks about, you know, it comes by co-suffering love, expressed in forgiveness, not by the man-made politics or bloodletting of a battlefield. Let us no longer be enamored by the ways of Caesar, ancient or modern, for it has nothing to do with the kingdom of God comes. And this is how he finishes up. He goes, because when a national superpower like Rome courts the blessing of the church, there is a very profound temptation. Because you see, if the church is not careful... And this happens over and over again. We saw it with the religious leaders in Jesus' day. We saw it in, in, in the year 300 with Constantine. And it happens all the time, all the way up till today. And Pastor Zahn says, here's the temptation. Our temptation can be to conflate human kingdoms with the kingdom of Christ. Where we believe there is a nice, easy relationship that in some way there can be a Christian superpower or a Christian nation, which he says is impossible because that which is Christian must look like the cross. That is the crux of Christianity. It must look like Christ crucified. And so he brings a challenge to us on Holy Week and says, we're either going to take up the sword of Caesar and engage in the means of coercion to bring about the purposes of God, or we'll take up the cross as Christ commands. The choice is ours, he says, and we can't choose both. So here's where we're going. As we enter into this sacred, this set-apart holiest of weeks, leaning into the ways of Christ, leaning into the ways of his kingdom and his kingship that led to his execution, we're going to do so from head to heart and contemplate this kingdom that Jesus is king of. Uh, Doug and I are going to lead you through, just like last week, there is a song in the midst of this practice, one that might be familiar to you. If you know it, feel free to sing along, if it aids in your contemplation. If not, just sit in the moment. This is your time with your father, your Abba, your Papa. So simply make yourself comfortable. You can do this with your eyes open or your eyes closed. And simply notice your breath. 
You don't need to seek to control it. Just simply notice that it's there. May your prayer this morning be as simple as your very breath, the breath of the holy. That holy ruach or pneuma or spirit or wind that is coursing in and out of your lungs at this very moment. Be present in this moment and inhale all that is good. Exhale all that is darkness, all that is weighing you down, all that. Just be in this moment. Be here this morning with us, with your family, with your God, with your King. Continue to breathe. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your children, give you humble thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all whom you have made. We bless you for our creation, our preservation, and all the blessings of this life but above all for your immeasurable love and the redemption of the cosmos by Jesus Christ for your means of grace and for your hope of glory. And as we pray, give us such an awareness of your mercies that with truly thankful hearts we may show forth your praise, not only with our lips but in our lives by giving up ourselves to the service of your kingdom and by walking before you in holiness, seeking your justice all of our days through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory throughout all the ages. And everybody said amen.
God, here are my hands, and if you feel comfortable doing so, perhaps offer your hands. As Father Michael Sparrow once said at a retreat, he says, pray with your body where your mind and heart are. So with our hands stretched outward towards our community, we pray, oh Christ, what do you want me to create or build today or this week? Who do you want me to serve? What activities should I keep my hands away from? God, may these small hands help build your kingdom. touching our lips. Loving God, here is my voice. I commit to only speak words of life today, words that build up and not tear down, always speaking the truth and always speaking it in love. Please help me to be a voice for the voiceless today. Please show me when to stay quiet. Oh God, may my voice make this world more like you've made it to be.
for the final time, hands over our soul, our heart, our nafesh in the Hebrew, that inner being, as the psalmist writes. And loving God, we pray, here is my heart. You know the deepest longings of my heart. And so I humbly hold these deepest longings before you. Here is my heart. God, our Heavenly Father, you declare your glory and you show forth your handiwork in the heavens and in the earth to deliver us in our various occupations from the service of self alone that we may do the work for your kingdom you give us to do in truth and in beauty and for the common good for the sake of him who came among us as one who serves your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, even as we pray together, our Father who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts just as we forgive those who are indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.